Well, good morning to you. This is our second week, as you know, uh, celebrating Advent as a quick reminder. Advent is a, the word used for, to describe the first coming of Christ in human flesh and at the same time, the second coming of Christ when he returns for his people. And between the first coming and the second coming, you and I have a job to do. And that is to fight and war well against the devil and the flesh and the world. That's called growing spiritually. And to wait well with faithfulness and endurance. War well and wait well. That is our job. And last week, Monty told us, I was deeply moved by this. I had sort of forgotten this. It had gone to the back of my mind. And my mind is getting more narrow as I get older, right? So it didn't have to go very far. But... Man, John, the apostle John, who wrote the book of Revelation through a vision from the Lord Jesus himself, just, just feel the context here. He's 90 years old. It's been 60 years since the Lord Jesus rose from the dead. He has preached the gospel faithfully all those years, been beaten, been persecuted, and then all of his friends had died. The other apostles were been martyred, killed and murdered for Christ and his sake. John's the only one left and they tried to kill him by boiling him in oil and left him for dead. And now he is 90 years old on the island of Patmos in isolation. And the Lord Jesus comes to him and says, John, <laughs> it's not gonna be long. Hey, you're gonna see me face to face. But before you do, I'm gonna give you a grand vision of more details about myself than you can ever imagine. Man, I wanna, I wanna finish like John did. <laughs> I don't think I wanna live to 90 though, that'd be ugly. And in that last week, Monty laid out for us the five churches, how they received a affirmation or commendation or the good that the Lord Jesus has seen both in their lives and ministry of these five churches. There's seven churches total, but five get uh, five have both good and bad, and we'll cover those this week as we unpack the bad. And here's why. Not only can we learn from the bad, but responding to the bad when we are the bad is crucial if we're going to fight the flesh, the world, and the devil, and stay on mission and war well and wait well. So that's why we're going to attack it this morning. Now, personally, and I think you would agree with this, I find it a lot more harder and difficult as we sit here in our seats to learn from the bad. And here's why our natural human tendency is to be what? Defensive, uh, to not have a lot of self-awareness, uh, we don't go around asking people, how do you ex experience me as much as we need to, nor looking at ourselves in a healthy way. Our own shame takes over. We can be very blind to our own sin and propensity for sin. But the scripture has an antidote to all that. And that is called healthy self-examination. Healthy word is crucial there. The Bible is slam full of verses like Lamentations 340. Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord, or Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. 
When's the last time we prayed that? Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Man, this is good. That way is good and right and true. And you and I will flourish in our walks with Christ if that is the posture and the position of our lives. But when it's not the posture and practice of our lives, the scripture warns us. It warns us with passages like 1 John 1.8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, we are liars. So in your hearts this morning, I want you to say with me as I had to say all week long, Lord, I am a sinner and need to hear your word of correction from you and I need to receive it as a gracious, gracious gift. And this morning, I want you to hear, we're gonna look at grace, absolutely. There is a way out of sin and it's, it's grace, but there's also another way out of sin and it's truth and you must have both. We're gonna hear that this morning. And then we're gonna hear redemptive time in the solution. Grace and truth. All truth and no grace is self-righteousness and pride. It's sickening. And all grace is no truth is a license to do as we please. And none of those are biblical Christianity. <clears throat> Matthew tells us that Jesus called himself a friend of sinners. <laughs> How about that? I like that. Jesus only got angry. The only people who ever got angry about were people who said they had what? No sin. Before we dive into these five churches, though, uh, I got a little note for you there. It says, friendly reminder, Jesus ain't like us. And the Greek word for ain't means not, just so you'll know. <laughs> Southern Greek. But why is this little friendly reminder here that Jesus ain't like us? It is, I think, though, it, it, we're going to see this morning that the problem in these five churches are very relevant to what goes on in our own hearts or churches all across America or the world. It's going to be easy to pick up. But I think a huge part of our problem of admitting our sin is we somehow think that God thinks feels, acts, and will respond just like you and I do. He doesn't. <laughs> so, so we do things like this. Well, well, if they really love each other, right? We, we compromise, we rationalize. Well, they're so nice people. Or we're so nice people, right? Like he, that's not his categories. He is not like us. And the writer of the letters to the seven churches, John describes Christ in the beginning of each of these seven letters. Listen to how he describes him, and you'll know he's not like us. He holds these seven churches in his hand. He was the first and last, the one who died and resurrected. He carried a sharp two-edged sword. He has eyes like flame of fire, the Holy One the faithful and true witness, a ruler of God's creation. None of that sounds like you and I, does it? Not even close. 
And yet, we often choose to trust ourselves about ourselves. I was like, oh, silly you and I. Silly, silly, silly little humans. We who are in great need and are great sinners refuse to go to the only one who has no sin and no need. And the Lord Jesus wants us to come to him. This is how Spurgeon put it. He was right when he said, we must all learn to hear what we do not like to hear. Somebody say amen. You can't use that with your spouse though, right? The question is not, is it pleasant? But is it true? Is it true? In light of that, is it any wonder that at the end of each letter to the seven churches, it says, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says. Lord, let us as your people hear what the Spirit says, no matter if we what a gift to be convicted and found guilty of sinning against the Lord Jesus so that we can respond correctly, which we'll talk about at the end. Because the Bible also warns us, Proverbs 26, do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes, who trusts himself, or, he, you know, there is more hope for a fool than for him. Man, that's not who we want to be. So, Monty covered a good, what is the bad of these churches in the book of Revelation as we try to war well and wait well. The first one is Ephesus. I described it as good works, cold hearts. Good works, cold hearts. Uh, this church obviously was modern day uh, Turkey where it was located. And not long ago, we talked through the entire book of Ephesus. It was a prominent church, and actually the vast majority of the other churches, if not all of them, were probably planted or founded out of the church at Ephesus. So it was certainly the most prominent and popular. It was founded by Paul. And in this context of this letter, it's been 40 years since Paul wrote, wrote the church at Ephesus. And so this is actually uh, uh, the church at Ephesus' second letter. Uh, has a long, rich history of faithfulness, people turning from idols, people putting idol makers out of business that we'll see in Acts 19. And when we get back in the book of Acts after the first of the year, we'll see Paul found this church. And the city itself was called the Light of Asia or the Gateway to Asia. Now, Monty went over the good last week. Listen to what it says. It's beautiful. I know your work, says the Lord Jesus, where you toil, you're patient, you endure, you will not tolerate evil, you love truth, you stand firm for Christ, and they do not grow weary of doing good. Man, I love that church. And as I thought about it, I thought this church is probably, as a whole, more like ours than any church that's mentioned here. So what in the world could be wrong with the church that the Lord Jesus himself describes so beautifully? Well, verse four in chapter two tells us, but the Lord Jesus says, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. 
I'd say this, when the Lord Jesus says he has a problem with you, it is a good thing that we would listen and respond. D.A. Carson described the church of Ephesus like this. The clear, penetrating, spiritual laser vision of Christ found a fatal flaw that probably no one else saw. Their hot hearts and spiritual passion was becoming cold and mechanical. I have been here more times than I want to admit. And if you're a Christian that's been chasing hard after Christ, you got to say the same thing. I know you would say the same thing. But it is a danger. It's dangerous for the folks in Ephesus, and it's dangerous for us today. Because here's what 1 John 4 says. We love because he first loved us. And when you and I forget that it was not us. You see people give their testimony or post something on social media. I found Christ. No, no, you didn't. He wasn't lost. He found you when you wanted nothing to do with him. Everything that took place was him choosing you before the foundation of the world. You were loved well. Therefore, it's like, why would you love me? <laughs> and yet you do. See, what hurts us is some of us think God is lucky to have us on his team. That's not going to make you fall in love with the Lord Jesus. And then some of us go, how can he love me? I'm such a wretch. That's not going to help you. But when you say, I don't know a lot, <laughs> but I'll tell you this. The Lord Jesus loves me in spite of me and he is more committed to me than I'm committed to me. I don't deserve it, but I get it all. Things start to change with our hearts. They had forgotten their first love because they had forgotten his love for them in spite of them. Jesus is saying to them, you don't love me like you once loved me. And it always, eventually, turns into spiritual apathy and indifference. The heart grows cold and sin follows. These church had great doctrine but dry bones spiritually. They were morally pure, but they had no love for God's grace to them. In some ways, there's a pervasive, prideful self-righteousness here. Look at all our works and service for God's mission. Spurgeon speaks to losing your first love or leaving your first love. Starts with prayerlessness and wordlessness. Every single time. you're not spending time in prayer and his word, it ought to scare you. I can tell you what's coming. A cold heart. How about this, ladies? How would you like it if your husband came home, those of you who are married, and said, hey, honey, how you doing? Let's talk a minute. I want you to know I got something to tell you, but it's going to be okay. And that is this. I don't love you anymore, but I'm going to stay around. I'm going to work and provide for you and take you out to Walmart and get you a hot dog on Friday night and help raise the kids and make sure the cars are fixed. I'm going to do everything I've been doing, but I really don't love you anymore. 
Ladies, how would that go? Mm. <laughs> I think sometimes we do that in the church when a heart gets cold. We still attend, we still serve, we still give, we are dutiful, but it's dry. Here's why we can't live on old bread. I've made the mistake of trying. Never feeds us. It never fuels our soul. Every single day, or I'll use the word consistently, you and I must open the scriptures and spend time in his word and prayer as if he is a alive person who wrote this scripture to us. Not as if he is. And you see yourself in light of who he is, the perfect holy one and the great sinner with all needs and one who has no need. That does something to our hearts over time. Here's how John Stott put it. He said, many love their deliverance, but not the deliverer. God is to be loved more than his mercies. His mercies and kindness lead us to repentance. But God is the one who gave them. No doubt God wants our hearts to burn passionate for him. In the first step, first step of descending spiritually is we leave our first love. So that's Ephesus. Second church is per Pergamum. And the word there to describe them, I think, is compromise. Monty used the word last week when he described the good at this church is consecrated. Uh, they, got, they were commended for maintaining their faithful witness in light of a satanic attack. But here's the bad force, verse 14 and 15. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So this church at Pergamum was compromising. The context is it was made up originally of Gentiles who had come to Christ, who experienced, experienced uh, spiritual transformation, but the culture was so pagan, they were drifting back into those old ways of living. Sound familiar to us today? No doubt. <clears throat> One writer put it this way, this church had married the world. Today, we would maybe call this a liberal church that had departed from the essentials and rock-solid truth of the faith. The city itself had a problem. It was known for worshiping the god of drunkenness and debauchery and also the Roman emperor, Caesar. Matter of fact, this city, a little history uh, gives us a sight into it. It was the first city in ancient Rome or the ancient Roman world to build a temple in order to worship Caesar in. So strong in terms of that. <clears throat> what made this environment though mainly tough for Christians was if you're a real Christ follower, you were not gonna worship Caesar. And if you were caught not worshiping Caesar, then what would happen is you would lose your citizenship 
or you would lose your job. And even in verse 13, it talks of a guy named Antipas that was killed. And most scholars say that he was killed because he refused to worship Caesar. So there was tension from the outside. In 14 and 15, part of the bad tells us they were holding on to the teachings of Balaam and Nicolaitans. They are allowing the world with its lies and worldly lifestyle of sin to not only come into the church, but this church is tolerating it, allowing it, and not dealing with it biblically. I don't think this church would say, do you believe in Christ? Yes, they would not deny the name of Christ. But based on their description, they were permissive toward open and rebellious sin, acting as if it's not there. Balaam, is it Balaam or Balaam? Let's say lamb. How about that? Okay. Sort of a pseudo prophet from the Old Testament. You can write down Numbers 22 through 25. You can go back and read about him. But the doctrine of Balaam and also therefore the doctrine of the Nicolaitans was making Israelites stumble by eating food sacrificed to idols and committing acts of sexual immorality. One called Balaam a prostitute prophet that tried to corrupt the Israelite people by having Moabite women come in and seduce the Israelite males to take Israel down from the outside. Another writer said about Balaam, they had gluttonous orgies, was his work, was the prophet's work, with the intent of taking down, as I said, Israel from within by marrying pagan Moabite women. But here's how Paul would address that. He would address this disconnect, this dichotomy, if you would, with this question. 2 Corinthians 6. What does fellowship have or what fellowship has light with darkness? The answer, none. And this church is saying it's okay. Light and darkness can mix. We got enough light. We got enough darkness. <clears throat> James, Jesus' half-brother in James 4 says, friendship with the world in any way is enmity with God. Compromise comes when we do as we please in our private lives and then come and try and do our Christian duty on Sunday morning. I grew up in a home like that. I grew up in a church like that where a lot of the folks, not all of the folks, had a completely different life from Monday through Saturday and then Sunday it was God's day. What is it in your life that looks like that? There's a warning to you, to me, when we do that. So we have Ephesus, good works, cold hearts. We have Pergamum. We have compromise. And then we have, I think it's called Thyatira. Is that right? Thyatira. This church, compromise 2.0. Woo, it goes up and it goes up quick. In some ways, all these churches are getting worse and worse and worse. Everybody, you want to do the scale. 
a little side note here about this church. Remember Lydia? Remember her name in Acts chapter 16? We'll get there in the coming weeks and months. It tells us that she was from Thyatira. And her and their members of her household were converted in Philippi. And many say she and the members of her household were the people that started this church. I thought that was interesting. And their commendation, Monty said last week, was they were reputable. They had a church, they were a church that had a reputable reputation for treating their people inside and outside the community well, for loving those people. But their compromise was even worse than Pergamum. And that's exactly what compromise does. It starts here, and as it continues over time, it takes us to places that we never dreamed of. And it took this church to a worse place, to full-on idolatry, full-out immorality, and the embracing and affirming and celebrating of both. And that's why we say at Fellowship Bible Church all the time, look, what you need to understand about the scriptures, what I need to understand is that, yes, it always calls sin, sin, but it certainly always normalizes with incredible truth about man's struggle with sin. It, it never says, what's wrong with you? You're struggling with sin. No, it's, say, it's talking to us as it knows it will, but it never affirms it, never celebrates it, and never justifies it. So that ought to make it very easier, easier for us to say, I struggle with sin and name it. Because anybody that goes, what's wrong with you? They're not knowing the scriptures. They're like, me too, brother and sister. Now let's talk about how to fight it. So they had this reputable character here. But the compromise was worth. They had worldly love divorced from sound doctrine. If Pergamon was being influenced by the world, one writer said, <clears throat> Thyatira was infiltrated by the world. But you know what? The flaming, all-seeing eyes of the Lord Jesus, he knows what's going on. Listen to how he addresses this church. But I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, and Jezebel wasn't her actual name, but it was a character name for a woman who was teaching and leading them astray. She's like a Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Now, what is sexual immorality? We had to find that for our culture. It's any sex outside of God's design of one man, one woman in a marriage covenant relationship, period. So we're, look, there's not a person born that has not struggled with sexual immorality. Very relevant to us. The woman teacher was leading the Christians to tolerate sin. Instead of fighting sin, and calling it sin. Charles Urban, another theologian, said large numbers of this church were yielding to sin and no one did anything. So it brings up the question, what will we do as church leaders when people are in known 
rebellious sin against God, no matter what it is. What, what will we tell you to do? Like, you need to know. Well, first of all, we want to call it sin because we don't want to remove the tension. If you remove the tension, people just go and do what they want. We want the tension between God's grace and his truth and time. God's grace and his truth and time. You feel that. That's healthy for you. That's healthy for me. But then we're going to tell you to do, and we're going to do what Matthew 18 says. Go to that person and say, brother or sister, let's talk. If they don't listen, which many times the first time they don't, <laughs> right? You take another brother or sister with you and you speak to them. And if not, maybe you bring them to the elders. Not for the sake of shame, not for the sake of punishment, because all church discipline, all of it, it's, the purpose is not punitive. It's not for punishment. It's restorative in nature. It's when heaven rejoices, when a sinner repents. It's a safe place. A gospel that says, do whatever you feel like doing because God loves you anyways is a God foreign to the Bible. Yes, God wants you just how you are because he loves you so much, but he will refuse to allow you to stay as you are. He will press on you. He is more committed to your growth and change than you are. I guarantee it. And if he wasn't, you wouldn't change. It's a beautiful picture. So we got Ephesus. We got Pergamum. We got... Thyatira, and we got Sardis. D-E-A-D, -E dead. Well, why in the world would I call a church dead? Well, the Lord Jesus does in verse one. Look what he says. <clears throat> I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are what? Dead. I did think how sad it is that the Lord Jesus would call a church dead, when that is to be the very place of life where his spirit lives in his people, a place of eternal life, <clears throat> and he calls her dead. Verse 2 tells us, Christ tells the church at Sardis, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. John and Christ seem to be telling us that this church at one time was vibrant. It was alive, it had a good past, but it was dead or close to dying. A shining past where the flames of spiritual life are now on its last flicker. It can get there fast. This is a church, obviously, when that happens, that has hit eject on the Spirit, the Holy Spirit's work in the lives of the people. It's also hit eject on the Word of God, and it's probably devoid or without Holy Spirit, Bible-led, godly leadership. And that happens, when that happens, churches die. So I asked the question, who comes to this kind of church? Because our country is full of them. It's typically a non-Christian or very apathetic, immature Christian. They don't know the difference, which equals a dead church. On a little interesting note here, maybe you'll win Bible trivia or something if you play this. Remember Aesop, the 
Is that how you say his name? The guy who wrote the fables? Yeah, he was, he was born in this city. So mark that. That's free. Man, this church was so bad, Jesus did not commend it because there was nothing to commend. A church with a superficial reputation, but dead. One writer said it was an ecclesiastical corpse. There are denominations, Christian denominations, that were at one time so vibrant for the gospel and the Lord Jesus Christ. And they are dead now. We're not beyond that. We have a better chance, but we acknowledge the truth of it, though. So we got Ephesus. We got Pergamum. We got Thyatira, Sardis, and we got Laodicea. It's lukewarm, or you could say yuck, right? The church at Laodicea was a sister church of Colossians, of the Colossae church. They were only about 10 miles apart, and Paul, remember, he wrote to the Colossians to address a heresy around the deity of Christ and who Christ was. And then Paul says in 4.16, he tells the Colossians to also read this letter to the church at Laodicea in order to address the same issue. So this city, uh, I read at one time, was destroyed by a massive earthquake. And I think the response to this earthquake gives us some insight to where it is spiritually. Because the Roman historian Tacticus wrote this, Laodicea, the city of Laodicea, arose from the ruins by the strength of her own power and resources with no help from Rome, even though Rome offered money and resources. Laodicea, I mean, Rome was the big dog. They had the money. Rome said, we'll give you $3.8 billion, whatever, to build your city. And Laodicea said, no, we take care of ourselves. They had passion for their city, passion to raise the funds, passion to build it back better than ever. They had passion for the physical, for what the eye could see. <clears throat> but they had no passion for the eternal. Sound familiar in our culture? Sound familiar to you about you? There's no commendation for this church either, only condemnation. Listen to verses 15 through 17. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For, I, for you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Earthly riches typically make us humans lukewarm. <laughs> Man, I, I just rarely do I see somebody who is loaded with cash. 
that's spiritually vibrant. And when you do, it's different. And if you talk to them, which I have, worth millions, hundreds of millions, the grind and mindset spiritually they have to go through to keep themselves from doing what Paul says in 1 Timothy 6. He says, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in the uncertainty of riches, but instead trust in the living God. This church did not, it could use that. Bluntly, the spiritual lukewarmness of the church of Laodicea made the Lord Jesus vomit. Here's how John Stott describes this church. Laodicea was a half-hearted church, and perhaps none of the five churches in era are more appropriate to the 20th century church than this one. It describes vividly the respectable, sentimental, nominal, I think hallmark channel, skin-deep religiosity, which is so widespread among us today. Our Christianity is flabby and anemic. We love our lukewarm baths, don't we? These folks name the name of Christ, and yet their hearts are far from him. Certainly, out of the sin and failings of those five churches, we are not beyond becoming them. Because individually, in which this church was made up, we're not beyond for sure. Partaking in what these churches partook in, people partake in, to begin to sin, right? So what is the solution? We need a solution. Two words. The text tells us two words. Remember and repent. At the end of each of these letters, you can read it on your own this week, are the words remember and repent, either or or both. But repent is in all of them. The solution is boldly given. Remember the kindness of God for you in Christ. And when you do that in the right way, it will bring you to repentance. Here's what Jesus' have brother in James 5. He screams a question. Do you not know that God is jealous over you? That he is jealous over those he bled for and that his blood to purchase them more precious than gold or silver to purchase them from hell? He's jealous over us. And when you talk about godly jealousy, this, this not twisted, perverted jealousy of us, like we have, but this perfect, holy, righteous jealousy. You got to go to the book of Hosea. <clears throat> In Hosea, the prophet Hosea marries a woman named Gomer. Man, he loves her, but she is so unfaithful to him where she goes out over and over and over again, prostituting herself literally to other men. And then God comes to Hosea and says, now you know what my life is like. Because I love Israel like you love Gomer. And Israel has been unfaithful and has prostituted herself, gone whoring after other gods. And it breaks my heart and I am jealous. 
Ray Ortland, in his book named Whoredom, says this, when his jealous love is provoked and offended, he burns with righteous jealousy because he expects and requires a faithful love in return. So when and not if you and I commit spiritual adultery, we sin against our glorious groom, what do we do? We remember his mercies are new and fresh every morning and we repent meaning we admit our sin, we confess our sin, we turn from sin every time we sin. And here's what happens over time. Matter of fact, one of the takeaways is every week there should be conversations in this church that you're having with another person who knows Christ that loves you, confessing, admitting, and turning from sin. You will sin less because when you put it out here over and over and over again, instead of hiding it, you're like, I don't like that. God doesn't like that. I hate that. I see it for what it is. And over time, you begin to sin less. The ability to even see our sin and turn from it is grace. Luther said, repentance is the way we make progress in the Christian life, the entire life of the believer is to be one of repentance. <laughs> I just wonder sometimes, is, do we do that? We get, if not, here's what happens, we get stuck and we do not grow and it builds up. And then all the things happened in those, those five churches, they didn't start there. They started back here with a little compromise. It was a long tail on ending off the cliff. How many of you watched last Saturday, you watched championship games in NCAA college football? Some of you? Any of you see the Michigan-Iowa uh, game? Michigan-Iowa? A few people? Y'all, I got the disciple y'all in football, all right? Yeah. <laughs> I ain't talking about liking them teams. I don't want to go there. But I saw a great picture of repentance. M Iowa punted to Michigan. Michigan guy received it. This is metaphoric now. The Michigan guy caught the ball. The first Iowa guy down, he was ahead of everybody, was about to blow him up, and the Michigan guy faked him out. And the Iowa guy went by him six or seven yards and fell down and slid. 99.99% of the time, that guy who does that stops and looks and watches the guy run away. This guy knows got up immediately and started chasing the guy, even though he's 20, 25 yards down the field. And he's running in and out of the guys. He's pushing his own way. He has no angle on him. He is walking the dog down this guy. So metaphorically, he misses the tackle. Let's say that's a sin. And immediately when he sinned, he got up and turned from his sin and went back to chasing the goal, which in metaphorically would be Jesus is the goal. Chasing after Jesus is the goal, and he knocked him out of bounds at the two-yard line. I've never seen anything like it. I've watched thousands of games and played in hundreds. It's a great picture for us. We sin, and we immediately get up, and we turn, and we chase hard after Christ. We recover quicker. We grow faster. We grow deeper. His mercies become fresh. Our shame is eradicated. 
It's a blessing. Let us walk in that this morning. Take a minute to ask yourself, so what, in light of that this morning. Jesus, we come to you this morning, and as I look at these churches, I think that collectively our propensity is certainly we have the propensity to do any of the things that were going on in these churches, but I, I look at us as a church as certainly a propensity or chance that we could lose, leave our first love. It's a choice. We certainly can compromise, and that compromise can get worse and then we can be lukewarm toward the things that really matter because we're more passionate about things that don't matter. So I pray wherever we are individually, even as a church, we have blind spots. Help us to live as you would want us to. Help us to, I love to apply the solution, remember and repent. Help us be great repenters book was written about Fellowship Bible Church or a letter was written to Fellowship Bible Church from you, it would be gorgeous to say you are great repenters. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your truth. And thank you for the redemptive time that you give us as you conform us into your own image. And everyone said,